0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a, an honor to be with you this morning. And before I forget, I'm, I wanna say a word about this this book you got when you walked in. Did y'all get one? It's called Men and Women Equal Yet Different by Alexander Strock. And uh, I suggested that they add this to the books that they give you when you come. I'm glad they did. Uh, are you familiar with this man? Uh, he's written on eldership, maybe you know him from that. Uh, but this is one of the few books that's short and helpful and sound as an introduction. Uh, Probably next summer, it will be my number two book I recommend because uh, Kevin DeYoung just updated his book for Crossway, it's gonna come out probably next year. And um, that'll be excellent, I'm sure. So in the meantime, this is one of the best ones out there that's short intro. So uh, I'll just tell you quickly a little bit about my my background with this topic. Uh, I I grew up uh, with uh, Mormon parents, uh, divorced when I was five. Uh, mom remarried a, a Catholic and uh, he had just actually become a Christian watching Jerry Falwell Sr. preach on TV. And we started attending the Southern Baptist Church and then my mom became a Christian and the rest is history. So that's how, how we, uh, we, I, I came into hearing about what the Bible says about the roles of men and women. Uh, when we were part of a Southern Baptist Church for six years, and then we moved to to Michigan, and we just looked for a gospel-preaching church, and we found a church called First Baptist Church of Troy, Michigan, uh, where Mike Harding's pastor, some of you may know Mike. And uh, from that point on when we moved, he would suggest churches to join when we moved to a new area, we moved moved a lot. And he was like a mentor to me from a distance. And I remember in high school, uh, one time I I, I came to visit him for uh, several days in, in the summer, and he just walked me through his library, book by book, and said, you need to get this, you need to get this. And I just wrote them all down and I bought them all. And, and one of them was John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism. I remember he took it off and he looked at me and said, this book is worth its weight in gold. And I wrote that down, worth its weight in gold. Right. And then, <laughs> so I eventually read it the whole thing real carefully and it influenced me deeply. So much so that when I started dating my wife, Jenny, uh, my wife now, um, I, I gave her three books, and that was one of them, and just said, could you read through these and make sure we're on the same page? <laughs> such a dork. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, she, she did, and it was great, and I'm glad we did that. But I'm just telling you, this is, uh, I believe this to the core of my being. Uh, it's, it's very personal, and uh, this isn't some academic topic. It's just, this is real life. So I'm, I'm a convictional complementarian. I'm going to explain that term as we go. Um, But I I believe this is what pleases the Lord, and I'm gonna try, if you're not convinced of it, I'm gonna try to convince you. And I'm guessing most of you are already convinced to some degree, and maybe you're more interested in the recent shifts within complementarianism. So that's what we're gonna start with this morning. Everyone get a handout here. Uh, I I I try to make it nice and long so it's meaty enough. I'm working with a a very long document. This is a a short one. Um, So in this this, uh, session right now, I'd like to start by asking, uh, what's the spectrum of major views that people hold on men and women? So the first, let's we'll get the, the big picture, and then we'll focus in on the different views within complementarianism right now. So this is, this is my attempt. It's the bullet points right there. Um, if you're thinking from left to right on the spectrum, on the far left would be the LGBTQ plus activism, that, like, that, that's one particular view of, the, of, of, of men and women. And then as you come to the right, there's there's radical feminism, like Virginia Remy Mollenkott. And come a little bit more to the right, reformist feminism. That's Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, as an example. A little bit further to the right is what you are probably more familiar with, evangelical feminism or egalitarianism. So it's uh, the Christians for biblical equality. Did didn't you know that's headquartered in Minneapolis? Uh, it's right here. Uh, actually, a few... Two years ago, I was entering stuff in my Zotero program, and I recognized they're in Minneapolis. I didn't know that. I looked them up. So I contacted the president and said, hey, uh, I'm one of the pastors of Bethlehem, teach at our school. Could we meet and talk? Uh, And we did. I I brought Joe Rigney with me, he's one of my buddies and colleague. And we met with with the president uh, for several hours, and it was a good discussion. Neither convinced either of the other, but it's just good to talk to flesh and blood people about these things. So they're right here. She thinks Bethlehem's evil, by the way. She she thinks that what we teach leads to, necessarily leads to abuse. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so uh, here's their mission statement. CBE exists to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. CBE's mission is to eliminate the power imbalance between men and women resulting from theological patriarchy. So I am opposed to that mission statement. I think that is destructive to the church and dishonoring to the Lord, Uh, but that's a very prominent view. And I think I have a footnote there on their handout, number two, that explains where I'm getting these categories. So you've probably heard of Andreas Kostenberger. He's a biblical scholar. His wife actually is a scholar as well. She has a PhD and she wrote this book called Jesus and the Feminists. And these radical reformist evangelical feminist categories, I'm getting from her. So here's how she describes it. Radical feminism rejects the Bible and Christianity because of their patriarchal bias. Reformist feminism uses the Bible as a means to reconstruct positive theology for women. And evangelical feminism says that the Bible rightly interpreted teaches complete gender equality. So that, that's where those categories come from. And then a little further to the right is complementarianism. So a a good example of that is, is CBMW, the council for biblical manhood and womanhood. And the term summarizes the theological view of the Danvers statement and conveys that men and women are both equal in value and dignity and beneficially different. So I've, I've, talked to John Piper about this term. He helped coin the term and, and his thinking is he's trying to distinguish from an authoritarian emphasis like the word patriarchy can connote authoritarianism. It doesn't necessarily mean that. There are some people who identify as patriarchal and they believe what I believe. Uh, but it's, it's trying to connote uh, that there's a beautiful harmony in the way God's designed men and women. They're complementary and, and, and When you invent a new term, you get to define it, and that's what they did to try to uh, distinguish themselves from others. Uh, We'll come back to that term in a moment. Next is authoritarianism, males selfishly abusing authority, what my fellow pastor Jason Meyer calls hyper-headship. So I find that kind of, uh, just start off with a big spectrum that's helpful to know where are we. There's another way to look at it. It's page two on your handout. I'm not gonna read through this with you. This is uh, Wayne Grudem's attempt to show the spectrum. It's in his book, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, An Analysis of More Than 100 Disputed Questions. And on this handout, I'm not, I'm not gonna get into all the details. Some of it uh, is, I don't know how you could defend all of it biblically, uh, but one particular argument I wanna point out that complementarians do not agree on is the way that Grudem makes a parallel from the Trinity to husbands and wives. So he does that on that handout. I'll say more about that later, Uh, I'm planning to. Um, I personally would not make that move. That is not essential to complementarianism, uh, but it's not heresy either, necessarily. So, okay, more on that later. So those are just some ways to view the the spectrum of views on men and women. You know, I'm a teacher, I like to interact. Uh, So along the way, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll pause. And, and see if you want to interact. Any questions so far on the spectrum? Uh, make sense? Questions on definitions? So far, so good? You're just warming up. It's early. All right. Now, next big question. What are the two major types of complementarianism today? So over the last 30 years, complementarianism has matured. And now uh, there are some significantly different viewpoints and leanings and theological instincts. And I think that there are two versions in particular that we can distinguish, narrow and broad. These labels are new. Uh, so I don't know of many published works on this topic that where someone says, I'm a narrow or I'm a broad complementarian, that these are such new labels. Um, Kevin DeYoung told me that he coined this, this, this term narrow versus broad in a private meeting with T4G guys in January, 2018. So that's how recent it is. Uh, so this is really, it's a broad brush, trying to distinguish, either, I don't know how much you follow uh, different people who claim to be complementarians on social media and their ministries, but you can just tell that there are different leanings. They're still under one big umbrella, but it's, it's almost like there are two positions now. And what's going on? So in this table, it's my attempt to try to make sense of that. I could be off and, and there might be some who kind of fit in one and kind of fit in the other. So this isn't a perfect paradigm. It's my attempt to try to make sense of the different leanings. So I do wanna read through this, this table with you. And again, we can, we can do questions as we go. So first topic is just manhood and womanhood. Uh, where do the narrow and broad agree? They both agree that men and women are equally in God's image, biologically different and complementary. Well, where do they disagree? For the narrow, uh, they have a narrow application. That's that's why we have the, the term narrow. So God requires men and women to relate differently to each other, only, in two specific areas, marriage and ordination. So a husband is the head of his wife, and only men may be elders, pastors. That's that's it. That is the that's all that it applies to. And then this view seems, in, in my experience, reluctant to define manhood and womanhood. You might say that I'm poisoning the well by saying it that way, uh, not fair. Okay, I, I've lo- I'm looking and looking and looking for real clear definitions of this and I haven't, uh, so this is my experience trying to, to 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 find people who lean this way. How do you define it? And it, to me, it seems reluctant, so that's why I said it that way. Another, another thing, reluctant to specify differences between men and women beyond the obvious biological ones. In other words, it's so, so quick to defend that we don't want to culturally stereotype men and women that they are hesitant to say how men and women are different at all. And then quick to point out that broad complementarians typically include cultural stereotypes in their definitions reluctant to treat manhood and womanhood as significant for Christian discipleship. Does this sound familiar at all to you, any of you? Just not, a little bit, okay. So the broad side, uh, and I, this would be what I, I believe. Uh, it's a broad application. The way God created and designed males and females applies in some way to all of life. So it's not just in the home and the church. It's the home, the church, and society. That the third edition, society, is what distinguishes it. And, and actually and also in the home and church is broader than the way the Narrows would see it. So here's how John Piper famously or infamously defined uh, manhood and womanhood back in 1991. He said, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Now that definition, those two definitions, uh, they're not the, necessarily the best. We can try to improve on these, but if you read that and you think, eh, I don't like that, I'd wanna say, so what's your definition? This is really hard to do, define manhood and womanhood according to the Bible. It's very difficult. Um, And I do think you can improve on that one because a lot of people read that and they think he's defining manhood and womanhood uh, from the perspective of marriage. And there's a way to, to capture what he says that doesn't lead people to think that. And that's what the next two definitions I think capture a little better. And they're building off of what he said, Matt Merker. Uh, So this is from the, he he used to be a part of of Capitol Baptist Church and they have this curriculum uh, they do and they have a, a, a study on manhood and womanhood and he helped write that. So this is from that. I just corresponded with him about this. Now he's no longer in that church, he's with the Gettys in Nashville. So he says biblical masculinity is displayed in a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving sacrificial leadership in particular context prescribed by God's word. Biblical femininity is displayed in a gracious disposition to cultivate life, to help others flourish, and to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. And you can you can download his curriculum, it's called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Biblical Foundations for Gender, from uh, CHBC's website. They're called Course Seminars. And then my favorite definition I've found so far is by Bobby Jameson. He's uh, a pastor with Mark Dever right now. It's this, manhood and womanhood are the potential to be a father or mother in both biological and metaphorical senses. I love that, partly because it's so easy to remember, and it just makes sense, It clicks for me. So he explains, to father is not only to procreate, but to provide, protect, and lead. To mother is not only to nurture life physically, but to nurture every facet of life, to care comprehensively and intimately. All right, I'm gonna resist arguing and just continue explaining. All right, so let's look at the topic of marriage. For the, from their own broad, they agree, A husband should lovingly lead his wife, which entails unselfishly and sacrificially serving her. And a wife should submit to her husband, which entails gladly and intelligently following him. The narrow view tends to emphasize mutual submission and not that a husband has authority. I'm planning to talk about that view in my third session, mutual submission. Is it right to talk about husbands and wives mutually submitting to each other. And then the narrow view tends to be more open to a mother pursuing vocations outside the home while putting the children in daycare. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. Broads wouldn't say that's always wrong. The broad view tends to emphasize that a husband leads and that a wife submits and tends to advocate living on the husband's income so that a mother can better nurture the children at home, especially when they're young. So that's marriage. Next topic is the church. So they both agree that only qualified men should be ordained. Here's where they disagree. The narrow view would say an unordained woman may do anything an unordained man may do, like teach an adult Sunday school class to men and women. Have you heard that argument? So the one who's popularized that most recently is Kathy Keller, a wife of Tim Keller. And that argument makes a lot of sense in a Presbyterian polity, where where ordination means something specific, it doesn't make a lot of sense in Baptist polity, in my view. Uh, Okay, back to explaining. Um, uh, the, The broad view believes only qualified men should teach and exercise authority over the church. And this includes the function and not merely the office of elder or pastor. I think that's the same office, elder or pastor. So it's marriage, church, and now society. The, the the narrow view is reluctant to specify how men and women should function differently in society. The broad view says that the different ways that God designed men and women apply to how men and women function in society. For example, some vocations are appropriate for males only. So as, as someone who's broad, I am trying to shepherd my four daughters, ages 12, nine, eight, and three, differently than I would shepherd a son. So when we talk about appropriate ways for them to think about their vocation when they're older, uh, my, my oldest daughter likes to write stories and to have heroines in them. Is it appropriate for them to be like, you know, Wonder Woman type people or should, should, should that, you know, we have to work through those sorts of things. Um, my oldest daughter loves bow and arrows. She loves she she loves swords. She's loved swords for her whole life. She loves drawing swords and making swords out of wood. Uh, so, like, I'm, I'm not by, by being broad it doesn't mean you can't have that sort of thing. But there's a way where you would shepherd someone differently, shepherd a, a girl differently than you would a boy, when it comes to how you think about those, like. Um, there's a, so a friend of ours is a police officer. We just had him over in our home. They're members of our church. And I, I just grilled him in front of my girls about what your job entails. What do you do? Tell me what's a typical day for you. And he works a night shift regularly. And it's banging down doors, pulling people over, cuffing people, chasing people. Like, my daughters were in awe of what he's doing. And I don't want them to aspire to do that. I'm not, not the way he's doing it. Now, there's a way to work in a police force where you're not doing that. So that. That's my personal opinion. I'm just showing you how a broad might apply it to his own daughters, and I don't want them to aspire to kick down doors. I want to protect them. <laughs> They're my daughters. Uh, if I had a son, I'd be like, yeah, go do it, man. That's great. Uh, so, that, that's just showing you the leanings are different, uh, broad versus narrow there. Now, what I just said might have offended half of you. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out in a moment. Uh, Next is theological instincts, intuitions, and burdens. For the narrow view, the the biggest problem facing the church's understanding of manhood and womanhood today is that men abuse their authority in the home and church. So we should emphasize that men and women are equal. This view affirms but doesn't emphasize that men and women are different and that God has given men authority in the home and the church tends to criticize broad complementarianism rather than to make a positive case for it. Now, for the broadside, agrees we should emphasize that men and women are equally made in God's image, that it's sinful for men to abuse their authority. Sinful men and women use any advantage they have to get their way, whether that's privilege, wealth, strength, beauty, or brains. Men abusing their authority has been a perennially urgent and major problem since Adam and Eve first sinned, so I'm not downplaying that at all, but in my view the most generationally urgent problem facing the church's understanding of manhood and womanhood today in our context is that our culture rejects God designed differences between men and women. So while our culture is emphasizing an unbiblical androgyny and egalitarianism, Christians should emphasize that God has made men and women with complementary differences and that God has given men authority in the home and the church. If you wanna track that point down more, I would recommend the Nine Marks Journal that came out in December 2019. It's on complementarianism, and the opening editorial by Jonathan Lehman is brilliant, and he addresses this issue really well. It's on pages 19 to 24 of that PDF. Last issue here is Theological Method. Uh, the Narrow View tends to be more biblicist. It narrowly affirms that God requires men and women to relate differently to each other in only two areas, marriage and ordination, because in their view, the Bible explicitly addresses those areas and not others. So that's what we believe, and there's there's freedom elsewhere. The broad view tends to include nature, that is natural theology, general revelation. So this broadly affirms different roles for men and women because of exegesis, theology, and natural revelation. The most helpful short article on that, how natural revelation relates to these issues of men and women that I found, is by my, my, my colleague Joe Rigney, and you can Google this and find it online. It's called, With One Voice, Scripture and Nature for Ethics and Discipleship. Fantastic article. Let me just follow up with, with four clarifying thoughts on this table, and then I'll invite questions on it if you have any. So first, uh, CBMW is an organization that prominently represents complementarianism, but it's not exclusively broad or narrow. So it's it's a big enough tent for all complementarians. My sense, my guess, I haven't done an official poll here, but my sense is that most of CBMW's leaders are broad, but not all of them. Um, So John Piper, they all agree with the Danvers Statement, and John Piper drafted that, Uh, Piper, Grudem, and some others coined the term in 1988, and and, uh, Denny Burke argues that the Danvers statement itself is mere complementarianism. It's it's bare bones. So narrow and broad, they can all say yes to that. Second uh, clarifying thought, both narrow and broad complementarians affirm that women may teach in various ways, such as explaining scripture privately, like think... um, Aquila and Priscilla talking to Apollos, or praying and prophesying in the assembled congregation, 1 Corinthians eleven four and 5, or women teaching women, Titus 2, or evangelism. So it's not saying that women, the view doesn't say women may not teach at all. Third is that it might be helpful to suggest some current proponents of these different uh, views of complementarianism. So for Nero, I'm, I'd probably include J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina, Kathy Keller, Beth Moore, Amy Bird, I may say more about her in a moment. Broad include folks like Denny Burke, Kevin DeYoung, Abigail Dodds, John Piper, Tom Schreiner, and I, I can go on and on, but I'm just trying to give you a flavor uh, of those who would, uh, and, and these are these are good people. Like if you know J.D. Greer, he's preached some fantastic sermons. He, he's a good guy. So it's not like enemies and good guys, in my view, it's just, uh, but truth matters and we can't, just say, well, I like that person, so I'm not gonna say anything bad about the view. I'm not gonna critique it. Fourth clarifying thought here uh, is that there's a spectrum even within the narrow and broad views. So it's not like it's, sometimes th- th- that table I made, it doesn't just fit everybody clearly. Uh, an example is is John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Uh, Piper is broader than Grudem on these issues. So if, if you know Grudem's position on these sorts of things, he'll talk differently than, than Piper. So Piper is more inclined to broadly apply what the Bible and nature teach by arguing uh, whether it's fitting for a woman to be a, a drill sergeant or, or something like that. Grudem uh, is more reluctant to go that way. So in, uh, in Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, this is what he says. We cannot assume that the general pattern of restricting civil government leadership over the people of God to men would also apply to the New Testament age where the civil government is separate from the government of the church. Uh, The positive examples of women involved in civil leadership over nations other than Israel like Esther and the Queen of Sheba should prevent us from arguing that it's wrong for women to hold a governing office. We are simply to obey the Bible and the specific application of these principles. What we find in the Bible is that God has given commands that establish male leadership in the home and in the church but that other teachings in his word give considerable freedom in other areas of life, and we shouldn't try to require either more or less than scripture requires. So he sounds narrowish there, but when you look at the, the bigger picture, he's, I wouldn't put him in that category overall. So I'm just saying it's not neat and tidy for, for every person. There's a, there's a spectrum even within the narrow and, and the broad. Uh, and then some within broad complementarianism are really broad, like broader than John Piper broad. Uh, do any of you listen to uh, the "It's Good to Be a Man" podcast? You know those guys. Am I the only one? I saw one head nod. Okay, yeah, uh, two, two. All right. So those guys—I if, if, forget their website. I think it's called It's It'sGoodToBeAMan.com or something like that. They are like we reject the term complementarianism. We are for patriarchy, and I've actually corresponded with one of these guys and. He read my, my recent review of Amy Bird's book, and he's like, we're saying the same thing. Uh, so, so he, he has assumed, because I'm part of Piper's ministry, that I'm a sellout to the watered-down complementarianism. And he's like, oh, you guys actually have a backbone. Okay. I'm like, but I'm reluctant to use the word patriarchy because of the negative connotations that has. I don't think that term is the best one to use, but if you can define it and you get, I think it's a, it's a fine position, but I'm just saying that some people, well, let me just continue, here's their definition. Uh, this is Michael Foster, and B-N-O-N-N, I don't wanna say that, banan, tenant. Tenant. Uh, they define patriarchy as the doctrine that men are made to rule in behalf of their father, and that this naturally begins in their houses, and continues out into the larger houses of nations and churches. The label, so the label patriarchy, basically is capturing the concept of authority. Uh, I just, I personally think that that has insurmountably negative connotations in our culture. But I'm very sympathetic with that that view. Okay, let me pause right there. Questions on on that spectrum of, of narrow and broad complementarianism? Yes, sir. He's asking about different. government. Is how would we put uh, women serving in government on that table with broad and narrow? Is that fair? Yeah, and then as it extends to life, like so, if I have a female boss, right? Would broad have an issue with that versus narrow? Order? Yeah, the way that I've heard John Piper talk about this is it, just, it depends on the nature of the relationship, uh, the, the the directness of, of of the interactions, and the nature of the authority and the way of communicating that. Um, so there. Like it, even at Bethlehem Baptist Church, there's a lady named Joby Morgan who's the head of the HR department, and she's the the boss technically of lots of of males, uh, but she does it in a way that I think is so appropriate and fine, and she's she's like a mother, and, and in her interactions, she's just. Would you agree, Daniel? He's a fellow pastor. Yeah. she's, she's, the deacon. she's, she's a deacon over that. Yeah. So, I just find that. Very appropriate and fitting, doesn't bother me at all. Uh, would I want my, my daughters to aspire to be president of the United States? Not a chance. He's the head of the military. Now, would I vote for a woman? Depends who the other guy is. Yes, sir. <laughs> but see, I'm all, I'm, I can be pragmatic. Uh, in a, so it's, it's only evil if compromising is compromising morality. Uh, so, yeah, anyway. Yes, sir. Well, I'm trying to be very generous, Jeff, here. Um, there are people who say, we are complementarians. We believe that only men may be elders, and only men may authoritatively teach the church. This is what you must believe to be a member here. This is, this is what's true. And I don't agree with this, but there's some who would say that the leaders of a church, those elders, can choose uh, to have a woman teach the Bible under their authority, but not teach it with the same authority as they teach it, but with their blessing, I'll allow them to to teach and preach. So, So occasionally Beth Moore will preach in a Southern Baptist church context where the pastors ask her to do that. So she said, well, they're asking me to do it. I'm not wanting to be a pastor. I'm just following them. I'm under their authority. I think that has lots of holes. It's dangerous. It's wrong. Uh, if you want to track this down, there's a great back and forth on this. Let's see. I'll get this out of order. Uh, but it, it was uh, Andrew Wilson was involved, John Piper, Tom Schreiner, uh, Jonathan Lehman, Denny Burke. I'm probably missing some people. But there was this back and forth, back and forth on the, on the Blogsphere maybe three or four years ago on this. And it was so helpful. And Mary Cassian wrote a fantastic article on this for Desiring God's website. Uh, I've just, she's a, a, a woman, commentarian professor at Southern, just weighing how she accepts invitations to speak in certain venues. And so much wisdom there. Other questions? Yes, sir. Okay. You may not have the office of the but this is the of Can you guys hear me in the back? And if not, is that inconsistent? Okay. He's asking on the chart, talking about women teaching Sunday school and saying, well, if, if a church would say no women shouldn't teach uh, adult Sunday school classes to men and women, then would that not entail that we might need to be more rigorous in the qualifications for the men we choose to teach? Absolutely, yeah, so uh, the idea is whoever's teaching with the authority of the the church leadership should be qualified to do that well because he's representing the church, so. Does it extend to small groups? Does it extend to small groups? Uh, It depends how small groups work. So I lead a small group and I don't really teach much. We just share updates, pray, uh, give advice, counsel, love each other, you know, it's, it's the one another's. For that kind of thing, I don't see why that, that would be a big deal. If it was a real serious Bible study, uh, maybe. Uh, I just I think there's more freedom there. The further you get away from the church gathered, or that's that's the that's that's the church meeting, to other, uh, it like ripples out. Uh, it gets less and less clear how to do it. Which I agree. I think that that's going to be the argument from right narrow commentary. Yeah. The, the further out the ripples go, the more ambiguity there is. Right. But women can then step in. Right. When he's, ask, he's saying the further out you go, the more ambiguity there is, and that's true. So a lot of this is a, is a wisdom call, and that complementarians recognize that they don't agree on all the applications. So you want to start with the principles, and then work out from there. What I'm going to encourage you to do is think through, how do I apply principles consistently and faithfully, and not just do what we've always done. do what most people are comfortable with. Like I just, we want to be able to say, here's why we do what we do. And even if some of you disagree in the final applications, that, that's okay. Do I sound like a squish to you? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> Mel? Or how would you argue your case versus? I'll do this really briefly. Cause this isn't the main point I wanted to address here. But Strach argues that only men can be deacons. If you want to actually see in, the, in that uh, Nine Marks issue I mentioned from December 2019, there's a back and forth between Tom Schreiner and Alexander Strock, where they present their cases and then they respond to each other. So it's four little articles, real brief, and real helpful to look over. Um, my personal view on this is that a lot of it depends on how your church defines deacons. I mean, it's really hard to define deacons With absolute precision, based on the evidence in the New Testament, there's just not a lot there. So, if in your church deacons function like elders, then I would say no, women may not be deacons. But if deacons function as as people that the elders are tasking to to help with specific things, specific ministries, it's fine with me. I think it's great. So that's what it comes down to. Yes. Right. Can, should I repeat the question for everyone? All right, he's saying, would that same logic that I just used mean that it would be appropriate to label a, uh, someone who's the head of the ministry to children as a children's pastor, even if it's a woman? Is that a fair right, question? Right. And I say, well, no, because my, my logic was that the Bible doesn't clearly define deacons. I mean, basically the way you get there is assuming that Acts 6 is talking about deacons, and what are they doing there? And that's how we define, de- like, that's all we got. Uh, it's, I don't mean to act like the Bible's is insufficient or anything. I'm saying that there's, there's a lot of ambiguity about what deacons do. For pastors, much clearer, much clearer that that is for men only. Now, do women do the activity of shepherding? Of course. Moms shepherd their kids. Like, so the activity of shepherding happens, but that doesn't mean you give the title pastor the way that the New Testament uses it. That's my, my view there. All right, any other questions about specifically broad versus narrow and, and these related issues so far? All right, so we, I think we go till about 9.30. What I'm gonna do next is talk about a recent book by Amy Bird. It won't take a long time here. I wrote a review, you can, you can Google it and, and see it online. Um, but I just want to introduce it to you. How many of you have read her book? Just curious. One-ish, two, three, okay. I don't want to bore you guys, but it sounds like does this interest you at all? It's, it's it's like the newest big controversy thing. Okay, so, but it it's it's I don't think it's a fad. I think what she did is she she what she just did tapped into um, a growing number of people who are uh, ex complementarian and they're looking for a way to justify. Yeah, that's where I'm going. It's it's almost like how when Rob Bell was writing his books, he he tapped into something and and it was. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So it's, there, there's a groundswell of people who are un, unhappy with complementarianism, and they, they're not ready to, to lead that label. They're not ready to say, we're egalitarians, but they're, they're wanting to, to distance themselves from complementarianism. And her book is like uh, the, the ticket on a platter. To, I just used two metaphors. Uh, it's, it's a way to, to justify the, the feeling of, I don't wanna be that. So let me just tell you about her book a little bit. Um, I told you the 1991 book, uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, she called her book Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So, I mean, I read the title, and I'm like, whoa, shots fired right away. Uh, uh, so she, she's an influential author, speaker, blogger. She used to co-host a podcast with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt called uh, Wages of Spin. Is that right? Yeah. Mortification of Spin. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, Carl Truman wrote a book called The Wages of Spin. All right, okay. So uh, after, after some events this summer, uh, the, her, her co-host asked her to answer a series of questions about her book, and she refused to do it, so they fired her. So she's no longer part of that podcast. So now she's moved her blog away from uh, Reformation 21, and she's, is it Pathias or something? She moved it over. So she's no longer associated with, with the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Uh, In her book, she claims to be recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, and for years she's been criticizing the uh, the version of complementarianism that people like Piper have been teaching, and this book develops those critiques. So let me just briefly try to tell you where she fits on the spectrum. So when when I just went over the narrow versus broad, she's definitely on the narrow side, but on some issues, I wonder if she's like overlapping with narrow and egalitarianism, and not like even going further left than that chart. So that's that's where I would put her there on this, on the spectrum. And just where I'd put her, I don't I'm not want to. She's a she's a nice person. She endorsed one of my books several years ago. We've been cordial and corresponding. We're friends on Facebook. So she's she's not the enemy. I just think she's wrong on this, and we we disagree. All right. She's a very nice person. Okay, so here, here's her argument, which uh, she doesn't explicitly state in, in her book. One of her replies to my review, by the way, was that she does state her thesis. She gives purposes in the intro. That's not a thesis. A thesis is a statement of, here is my argument. She never does that. So here's, here's my attempt to say what her thesis is. So-called biblical manhood and womanhood, especially as John Piper and Wayne Grudem teach it, uses traditional patriarchal structures to oppress women. That's what she argues over and over and over. And she does it winsomely. She does it in ways that are uh, kind of kind of funny at times and uh, with wit, uh, so I, my, my guard is up even more because I don't want her view to influence my church or my school. So that's why I wrote a very long review of her book. I, I wanted to nuke it on the launch pad And I do not want that influencing us. So that's why I reviewed it. I didn't enjoy writing the review. Okay, so three parts here, the three parts of her book. Uh, We need to recover the way we read scripture, especially by emphasizing parts that have women-centered perspectives. So she has this big section on Ruth. And I'm thinking, yeah, everybody loves Ruth. Like, how how is this supporting narrow complementarianism? The whole argument didn't seem compelling to me at all. Uh, So she's saying, emphasize a women-centered perspective, and somehow that leads to undermining complementarianism. Part two, she argues that we must recover our mission through church-based discipleship. So she says over and over, the aim of discipleship is not biblical manhood and womanhood. And I'm thinking, who says that? Who says that? Uh, I'm not supposed to be critiquing. I'm just telling you. Uh, Part three, she argues that we should recover the responsibility of every believer which entails giving women more prominent roles to teach and lead both men and women in the church. So in her book, she's basically arguing that so-called biblical manhood and womanhood wrongly restricts women and that women will better flourish if conservative evangelical churches remove what she thinks are unbiblical restrictions, like not allowing women to teach the Bible in Sunday school classes to adult men and women not going to thoroughly evaluate her, her book here. You can read my review for more if you'd like. But I do want to share something Tom Schreiner wrote. Good, it's on your handout. I share Tom, Tom's uh, uh, attitude here as I, as I critique folks like this. He says, I worked and studied in schools for 17 years where I was a minority as a complementarian. I thank God for evangelical egalitarians, and I thank God for complementarians who think they're slipping a bit who I think are slipping a bit, excuse me. Still, what we do in churches is important, and I don't want to say it doesn't matter. It does matter, and I'm concerned about the next generation. But we can love those who disagree and rejoice that we believe in the same gospel. The cultural forces are incredibly strong, and our society, in my judgment, overemphasizes freedom and equality, and doesn't value sufficiently authority, obedience, and submission. Are complementarians like me too strong sometimes? Do we make mistakes in how we present our view? Of course, and it's Latin for simultaneously just and sinful. But it doesn't follow from this that the view itself is wrong. I love that spirit, uh, and it's, it's saying it, it's a friendly critique. It's a concern for truth, and it, it's saying here's what's motivating the critique. It's I want to be faithful to God. That's what motivates us. So I, I will just say there are at least four areas where I agree with Bird. I think I'll listen there for you. Some complementarians define masculinity and femininity in a way that's more cultural than biblical. And there, there are some churches where the men feel like, if I don't love football and hunting, I'm not a man. And I'd, I'd say should, we shouldn't develop cultures that make men feel that way. That's not the essence of manhood. Uh, second, women are indispensable, and men need to hear their perspective and learn from them. I love women. I married one, and I've got four daughters. And got a, I, Women are awesome. Uh, so uh, third, women can minister in many ways, and pastors should encourage women to study the Bible and theology just as seriously as men should. Bible studies for women should focus on exegesis and theology and not always focus on marriage and child-rearing. And I'm grateful that Bird has been motivating women to study the Bible and think deeply about theology. I think that's great. We want our churches to have a culture where the women want to go deep. They want to read theology. They want to have exegetical Bible studies. Amen. And number four, a person's local church, not parachurch organizations, should have the most disciple-shaping influence on a Christian man or woman. So I'm, I'm saying amen to all of that. But I can't recommend her book because her overall approach is misleading and misguided. And she's repeatedly misrepresenting complementarians. She's repeatedly showing faulty judgment or reasoning. And uh, I won't I will believe belabor that more. I'll just stop there. for what I'll say about that book. Question? Comment? Yeah. distance, and I know you care very deeply. Did I tell you? Did we talk about this? Yeah, we did. Class. So okay. I'd like you to just explain that, especially as we have pastors here that care very deeply about this. Yeah. We may have to talk about this. So... The review, the published review, is like version 7.0. Uh, you should have seen 1.0. It was I was a fire-breathing dragon, um, and my wife and some close friends read it, and they're like, "What is this? This is not the Andy we know." They're like, because most of my writing, I try to be clinical, uh, even-handed, composed, and I was, I was mad. So I toned it down. Worked really hard to just be like a lawyer of like just the facts. Here's what she says. Here's what the Bible says, and try to try to tone it down. But just know, my heart in this one is I care deeply about this one. Um, this is a, this is not some minor little issue. So, did you want to say more to that, Ethan? Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna say more about that a little bit later. Uh, but uh, Amy Bird, just also uh, say this, in 2016, she kind of jump-started the big controversy that happened online, uh, questioning whether it's legitimate for complementarians to appeal to the Trinity as an analogy for husbands and wives. So I think that's my third session. I'm gonna say more about that. Okay. Any other questions on Amy Bird's book? I think I might say a little bit more about that along the way. Let me just close. Uh, We've got eight minutes. Uh, I'm gonna close with, with four exhortations about uh, about these issues. And I'm imagining that uh, most of you are probably complementarian. Some of you might be on the fence between narrow or broad. Some of you might be fed up with complementarianism and thinking about going egalitarian. So these are just some exhortations for you as you, as you, uh, you think about these issues. For number one is study this issue for yourself. Um, As I've interacted with people on these issues, I've just been shocked how few people have actually looked at all the main passages and correlated them for themselves. There's a lot of biblical data on this issue. Are you conversant with it? Can you just flip from passage to passage in your Bible and put it all together? You need to be able to do that if you're a pastor. It's got to be, we don't believe what we believe because John Piper wrote a book about it. And, and that's not to knock John Piper. He'll tell you, examine it, test it against scripture. That's what matters. That's our authority. So I just, would exhort you to study this very carefully for yourself. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm frustrated that this is, this is happening, that there's a, a debate again. I thought that the 1991 book, this was like a nail in the coffin. Boom, let's focus on other stuff. And it's like, whoa, 30 years later, it's back. Uh, that's just the nature of error. It's gonna it's gonna always be cycling around. And to combat error, you've got to know the truth. So know the truth, study it well. Um, some of my favorite new voices on this are Kevin DeYoung and Joe Rigney, Abigail Dodds, Carolyn Mahaney, Rebecca Merkel, Claire Smith. Claire Smith has a PhD on the subject. Her husband's Rob Smith at one of the New Testament, one of the, the, the book review editors for Thamelios. She's fantastic. So, there are some really refreshing, winsome voices right now talking about this. That's exhortation one. Number two beware of the ditches on either side of complementarianism. On the right is a version of authoritarianism or hyperheadship in which men have abused their authority and hindered a woman from flourishing. On the left is a version of egalitarianism or feminism. And it's important to understand those ditches as you analyze why you might struggle with complementarianism. Increasingly, there's this popular view in in complementarianism in our circles that we need some kind of progressive complementarianism that's more egalitarian or it's kinder and gentler and more affirming and more liberating to women. What do we make of it when a woman says that she feels like she needs to recover from biblical manhood and womanhood? Well, to recover means you're returning to a normal state of health and mind and strength. If a woman genuinely needs to recover from manhood and womanhood, the problem is it's not biblical manhood and womanhood. It's probably one of those two ditches. So here's an analogy. What would you make of it if a 15-year-old girl came to you as a pastor and said, my parents are overbearing. I, I've had it. It's, it's, I, they're, they're over the top, overbearing. Well do you believe all women or, or do you ask questions? And you know, you're going to say, I'm with you. I'm, I'm for you. Doesn't mean you're going to be her legal lawyer and take her side. You're going to try to understand what's happening here. And you, it's certainly possible that her parents may be sinfully domineering. That is possible. And that would be evil, and you'd want to confront the parents. That's, that's, that's one possibility. It's also possible that the problem is primarily not her parents, but her own rebellious attitude that's chafing against God-given authority, and that her parents are actually wise and loving. That's possible, too. And there could be a combination of factors. Uh, so on the one hand, the reason some women feel like they need to recover from male leadership in the home and the church is that the male authorities could be abusing their authority. That's, that happens and that's bad. So I'm against that. That's evil. And we've got to be self-critical. Are we tolerating that? Are we fostering that? Are we saying things that develop a culture that's like that? We, that's not good. On the other hand, and I think this is a bigger danger for us right now in our cultural moment, the reason some women may feel like they need to recover is not that their male authorities are abusive. It, it, it's that... Possibly the women are rebelliously chafing against the God-given authority of godly and unselfish husbands and pastors. Or or it could be that their husbands and pastors are complementarian in name only. That is, they affirm the biblical concept, but they don't practice it. They're wimpy. They're passive. They're not leading. When men characteristically fail and disappoint the women that they're supposed to be leading, women become embittered uh, uh, towards so-called manhood and womanhood. So that, that's possible too. All right. Exhortation three. I got to go fast. Uh, discern the ditch which you are most prone to fall into. I'm getting this from my colleague, Joe Rigney. So basically, saying, are you more prone to fall into the ditch of authoritarianism or egalitarianism? And one test is, uh, which text in the Bible are you more eager to preach? So if you're on a preaching team and you're, let's say, uh, you're working through 1 Peter or Ephesians or Colossians and you're dividing up the texts, would you rather have the text on husbands, love your wives as Christ, love the church? Or husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way? Or husbands, uh, don't, uh, don't be harsh with your wives? Or would you rather have the passage wives, submit to your husbands? Uh, be like Sarah, who called her husband Lord. Which one would you go for? You're like, oh, I'd rather go after the guys. I, I, that's, if that's your leaning, that's telling you something about yourself. And then, if, once you're preaching, when you preach to the guys, well, I shouldn't say that. When you preach the text addressed to the men, are you more likely to be straight down the middle? Like if it's baseball, it's going to be like a fastball right over the center plate, of the plate. Or when you preach to the church on the passage about women, are you more likely to focus on, well, here's what it's not. It's not this, 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 and this. And take the teeth out of the passage. Now, we need to qualify. you got to do that. I'm just saying that just tells you where your leanings are. Know where your leanings are. What, are, what, um, what ditch are you most prone to fall into? And then finally is number four, love and celebrate how God has designed men and women. So uh, Don Carson is my mentor, and he told me that once he was counseling these folks, and it was over this issue on complementarianism, they were, they were egalitarians. And finally, after a bunch of discussion— Uh, One of them said, okay, I see it now. Uh, Scripture teaches complementarianism. Um, I agree, but I still don't like it. And Don said to them, well, good, you're halfway there. (laughs) Because if God teaches it, if it's true, then you need to love it. And if your heart's not in it, it's not loving it, it's, it's like whether it's the doctrine of hell or the eternal destiny of people who haven't heard the gospel, or whatever the doctrine is, it's a hard doctrine. If you're like, ah, I kind of believe it. I, I, all right, I believe it. it's in the Bible, but man, I don't like it. I'm kind of embarrassed by it. Well, you got a problem. You got a hard problem because you're not thinking about it in a way that honors God. Similarly, on complementarianism, if you're like, yeah, okay, I concede that's in the Bible, but man, I'd rather not talk about it. I don't, I don't really like it. That's a problem. We are supposed to love this. And so my exhortation here is that you get to the point where you can look at what God teaches about this. And in your heart, you say, God designed men and women to flourish this way. And it's good. Praise God for this. That's where we want to be.